welcome everybody, um, speakers and listeners who will get a chance to ask questions um, towards the end. Uh, I'm Steve Gutterman, um, editor at RFERL, focusing on Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. Um, today we're going to talk about uh, the Ukraine crisis, what comes next, and as some have pointed out, it could also, or perhaps better, be called the, the Russia crisis. Uh, so we can call it that as well. Um, I'd like to introduce, we have some great um, speakers. Uh, I'd like to introduce uh, them one by one. Uh, Dr. Olga Ulicker, Program Director for Europe and Central Asia at the Crisis Group. Welcome, Dr. Ulicker. Great to be here. All right, and uh, Tatiana Yakubovich, senior producer at RFERL's Donbass Realities, based in Kiev. Uh, welcome, Tatiana. Hello, everybody. Hi, and uh, also um, from the Ukrainian service, uh, Rostislav Kotin, senior editor at RFERL's Ukrainian service. Thanks for joining us, Rostislav. Thank you. Uh, and finally, uh, uh, other um Speaker from RFERL is Irina Lagunina, uh, sometime guest on my uh, Monday podcast, um, and uh, uh, more importantly, director of special projects at RFERL's Russian service. Uh, thanks for being with us, Irina. Uh, thank you for inviting, Steve. All right. And it's also possible we may be joined by RFERL senior correspondent Mike Eckel, but not clear as he's actually in the field in Ukraine uh, right now. Uh, so we'll see whether that happens. Now, I'd like to start by um, trying to give a brief uh, recap or rundown on the situation. Um, obviously, it's a bit hard to encapsulate briefly, but I'll, I'll try. Uh, essentially, Russia has amassed an estimated 100,000 troops or more um, near Ukraine's borders. And also, of course, it has troops in Crimea, which it seized from Ukraine in 2014. Um, and U.S. intelligence, U.S. officials and, and other Western officials have said uh, that uh, Russia is planning or has, you know, is making plans for a possible invasion, a possible new um, military offensive uh, against Ukraine. Um, now, uh, at the same time, well, in December, um, uh, Russia uh, laid out several what it calls security concerns uh, and proposals for the United States and NATO. Some of these are framed as demands, um, including, and some of them have essentially been rejected. Uh, the West and, and the U.S. and NATO have said they're, they're uh, non-starters. Um, these include... Uh, a binding guarantee uh, that NATO would, would, will never expand further eastward. Um, that would obviously preclude uh, Ukrainian membership as well as uh, membership for Georgia and other countries in the region. Um, and another big of the biggest demands is um, for a rollback of NATO deployments um, and military cooperation that have taken place since, I think it's May 1997, um, and that's before, that's when NATO and Russia signed a, a, um, uh, an agreement, and it's before all the countries 
from the Czech Republic, uh, the, all the current members from the Czech Republic in the West to the Baltics uh, in the North and Bulgaria and Romania in the East joined. So that would essentially, um, you know, it would restore, uh, give Russia a big say in what can happen in that whole region um, that obviously was under Moscow's dominion for decades uh, during the Cold War. So now that's another element of what's happening. Uh, there's also um, now, and especially in recent week or two, renewed Russian pressure for uh, movement on the Minsk uh, agreements to resolve the, um, the the war, the conflict that's continued in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine, uh, where Russia-backed separatists hold parts of two provinces, uh, and more than 13,000 people have been killed uh, since 2014. Um, so that's another thing that's happening. Now, there's been a flurry of diplomacy now for more than a month, you know, essentially starting in December. Um, and a lot of, um, but at the same time, Russia's military uh, buildup near Ukraine has continued by, by most accounts or all accounts. Um, and... Uh, the threat of invasion um, has not has not disappeared, at least according to, to NATO and the United States. Um, yesterday, um, Russian President Putin made some of his most uh, some of his few remarks about the whole situation that, that he's made in the past couple of months in a meeting with Viktor Orban of Hungary. And he, as other Russian officials have have noticeably done, I think, in the in the past few weeks, you know, indicated that there's still a chance for more diplomacy. Uh, and and uh, he, he, well, I, I don't think he mentioned the Russian uh, buildup at all. Um, and he, he certainly didn't uh, threaten uh, any um, invasion, but he, he, he also did not uh, you know, rule anything out. So that's another development. Now, I'd like to uh, start by asking Dr. Olker, um, you know, with, with all this diplomacy, uh, it's been continuing and, but there's also been a sense, I think for some that, you know, it, it might be finite. Uh, there might be, uh, a time when Russia says, okay, you know, we're not satisfied, um, with what the, with what NATO and the U S are saying or what Ukraine is doing. Um, and we're going to end the diplomacy. So th that's my, my first question, I guess, is what, what are the chances that diplomacy can prevail, at least in the next few weeks and months? So diplomacy, if it works, is going to work over a very long period of time, right? Um, it is working now insofar as it is preventing conflict now, right? Unless you believe that Russia is just playing with everybody else. But, um, you know, here's the thing. What we're talking about, if diplomacy works, what it's going to set in motion is even more negotiations, long-term negotiations about the future of Europe. Uh, so kind of the immediate effectiveness of diplomacy would be that Russian forces move back from their current buildup. But that's not going to be the end of things. There's still going to be more diplomacy to come. And so if it works, it's just the beginning. Um, there isn't kind of this instant we've got a deal and then everybody is happy and goes away. Um, it could work, right? Uh, and 
in the sense that it could yet avert um, a, you know, more conflict, more war in Ukraine, escalated war in Ukraine for the long term. It could also fail. Um, and you know, that doesn't mean that you don't try. It's the right way forward is to look for diplomatic solutions um, and you know, military solutions, um, solutions that involve uh, extreme sanctions, et cetera, need to be last resorts, not first resorts. Okay, and um, I guess the follow-up question, it's looking looking sort of forward into the future a bit, but and, and it's, I guess, optimistic, but if diplomacy does work in this case, at least, uh, you know, for the, for the near term, does that, does that help? How can future crises be prevented? Does, does this situation kind of help, help um, the countries figure, figure that out? By keeping the diplomacy going, right? So what we've got on the table now for broader European security is this conversation about what kind of limits political and military Western states and Russia are willing to want from each other and are willing to impose on themselves. And that's, you know, that's not, as I said, it's not going to be a one and done deal. That's going to be a long term set of conversations, unilateral actions, deals. If that keeps going, um, it eventually gets you to a place where Europe is more secure and less prone to crisis. And indeed, the very fact of it continuing helps. But, you know, it, there's always going to be room for it to derail. There's always going to be room for another crisis. The alternative, however, is if there is escalation and it's followed by both sanctions and a huge buildup on the part of Western states and then a huge buildup on the part of Russia, even more tension than the next the next escalation, the next crisis is going to be that much worse. Okay. And uh, I mean, I guess one thing that strikes me is, you know, you mentioned there, there's uh, room for, I guess, future, future deals and, and talks about, about things like weapons deployments, that sort of thing. But still for me, hanging over this is the Russian kind of demand and what, and what they've called, you know, what they've said is really uh, kind of, uh, they're, they're really insisting on um, or they or Russia says that it needs uh, these these two things, especially the, the binding pledge for no NATO expansion uh, eastward. So for me, like it's it's diff it's uh, difficult because we're, we're talking about um, and, and I guess the big question, one of the big questions that remains is, you know, is Russia, in fact, willing to uh to at least let those slide, I guess, for the time being, and, and talk about other things. So far, the indication is yes, but um, I think it's not been answered um, uh, fully. Now, a sec another question for you, sorry, mm -hmm. Dr. Olker, would be: um, you know, you mentioned the chances things can th things can go wrong, uh, that the diplomacy could fail. How important is Western unity in this in this crisis? And I guess, how has uh, the unity in the West or the lack thereof affected developments so far? Okay, so on the first question, um, will Russia accept less? We'll find out. Um, I think one of the interesting factors in having all of these written and, and in Russia's case published, the US case leaked, and NATO case leaked, um, question, you know, responses to one another is 
something that you expect will be publicly read forces you into your the most extreme version of your position, right? You're not going to show where you have room for compromise in something that's going to be publicly available to everybody and in something that's going to be part of the public record. You're not going to show um, any of the gray zones where you might have... Um, where you might be willing to give a little bit. And that, um, that certainly creates the impression of everyone being quite firm in their positions because, you know, and that's great for negotiating because it anchors you and it makes the person you're negotiating wish to think, okay, they're not going to give on that. Where can I give? Right. Um, hopefully, uh, in their actual conversations, we're hearing a little bit more room for maneuver because if not, then... Yeah, this is doomed. Um, in terms of unity, um, you know, unity is what you make of it, um, and disunity is how you construct it to a certain extent, um, I say, as a structural realist. Um, but, you know, here's the thing. If you spend a lot of time looking for signs of disunity, you will find them. You've got a whole lot of different countries on the Western side with a lot of different preferences and a lot of different concerns. Overall, however, they are pretty united in that they agree on what they want. They want the Russian buildup to be reversed. Uh, they agree on what they want in terms of NATO enlargement, which is, to be honest, that NATO not, in fact, enlarge to Ukraine, but that it not close off the opportunity, uh, the option for the future. Uh, they are united in that they're... Uh, in their view that if there is further aggression on Russia's part, it they will have to respond to it um, quite harshly to the point of hurting themselves, and that they hope that Russia will recognize that and for that reason be dissuaded from doing that. So they're actually pretty united that they disagree on some of the specifics of what to do and what each of them should do shouldn't surprise anybody and isn't really quite that fatal a flaw. They are all separate sovereign states yeah absolutely okay um that that's uh that's very uh good good insights uh i guess i'll turn to tatiana now um ukraine is obviously at the heart of this uh of this crisis um you know uh, and though a lot of the time the focus tends to be on on russia and the united states and nato and, and partly that's because I think uh, because Russia uh, is is playing it that way. But um, Ukrainians and Ukraine, obviously, in, in the middle uh, and in particular, I guess, at the deepest in the middle are people in the Donbass on, on both sides of, uh, of the line between uh, areas held by the Ukrainian government and those held by the Russia backed forces. Um, so I just to tell I wanted to ask you first, uh, what do people on, on both sides of the line in the Donbass, what are they thinking about the situation? Uh, thank you, Steve. Uh, really, we work mostly with people because we are journalists on the ground and uh, our project works for people both at uh, the part of Donbass controlled by Russian hybrid forces and both uh, Ukrainian controlled part. Mm -hmm. Uh, in general, uh, people in Donbass, they uh, differ even from other cit uh, citizens of Ukraine because we're a big country, of course, and we have uh, cities where a very peaceful situation is. Uh, there are restaurants uh, and uh, raves and uh, people do not think about the war. 
and people in Donbass, they have already experienced war. So on the one hand, it helps uh, not to be surprised, they uh, are ready for that situation. And on the other hand, of course, um, they know how it is when houses uh, ruin and you leave your home. Uh, so talking about those who live in the territory controlled by Russian hybrid forces now, uh, mostly, as I see, they are worried because of uh, social circumstances of their life. I think they feel uh, danger of war not so real as a uh, low level of, of life. There are many problems uh, there and uh, difference of the level of life between these uh, two parts of uh, Donetsk and uh, Luhansk region is uh, huge. Uh, first, they have no uh, access to normal access to Ukrainian pensions because uh, checkpoints are blocked since 2020. Uh, as uh, Russian-backed groups uh, explain, it is because of COVID-19, but uh, in fact, uh, it is uh, different demands to, to Ukraine in Minsk peace group, and they closed these um, checkpoints. People cannot bring medicine, for example. Um, salaries are, are very low, about three times difference uh, from uh, Ukrainian-controlled territory, and the prices are the same. Uh, so uh, they were scared by uh, so-called Ukrainian attacks so many times by Russian television that uh, they uh, perceive it very calm now, I think. Uh, speaking about Ukrainian-controlled territory, of course, people are nervous, worried, they prepare, by, but um, often uh, they like to stress, it is very interesting, and I see it from my uh, Facebook feed, uh, for example. They stress, unlike you, uh, we are more balanced. Or uh, are you afraid they are in your Kiev or in your Kharkiv? And they laugh uh, because uh, they hear shellings for already uh, eight years. Mm -hmm. And they um, li like to underline this uh, detail that uh, people th who live far from the war, they are more uh, afraid of it. Uh, recently, uh, young, uh, young people from uh, one uh, small village in Frontline, it is called uh, New York in Donetsk region, they uh, have a non-government organization and they recorded video extract uh, addressed to Western leaders where they ask, uh, please uh, defend us, we are tired from war, we do not want new uh, Russian attack. And we talked uh, with them and when journalists uh, asked if they believe in this attack, or it is a bluff of Putin, they answered that, uh, of course, we believe because uh, we already uh, were fired. It is a reality, it is a fact of reality, so nothing strange. Uh, so yeah. to underline, I, I may say that they are more calm, uh, but more uh, realistic uh, at the same time. Yeah, that's a, that's a great picture of, uh, of the situation there as, as seen by the by the by the people on both sides uh, i guess a little bit um are they talking at all um, about the idea of russian recognition of the areas held by the russia-backed forces as independent states um and if so what are they saying what are the people on the ground the people living there saying um it's this is something that has been an idea that's been around for a long time but it kind of uh, kind of gained currency or has been talked about uh, a lot more in the past couple of weeks after an 
initiative in the in this in the state Duma in Russia uh, to call to call on Putin to recognize um, these separatist held territories as independent countries. It would obviously mm-hmm. be a big shift in the situation uh, in in the Donbass. But are people there saying anything about that? Um. Recognition, uh, we need to understand that recognition of uh, these uh, LDNR uh, groups or territories, it was the main topic for uh, Russian media, for Russian propaganda and for uh, controlled uh, administration in Donbass, because every year they promised we will become um, mainly even not independent, we will become the part of Russia. Right. Uh, this was uh, the goal they uh, stated for people. So media controlled by DNR uh, formations, of course, they talk about that. People, I think, uh, so-so, because as I mentioned, social uh, items are more important for them uh, now. And um, in general, this recognition, the logic of this process is not so clear for me and for my colleagues. I asked before this discussion, my my colleagues, what uh, do they think? It might look like reason for invasion, but in fact, uh, Russia doesn't need any reason because we see, see um, two facts in latest escalation. First, this that um, attack is not uh, advantageous for Russia at all, if uh, thinking from a normal position of a European person, because um, a war will uh, mean economical decline, many killed, uh, disconnect among people and other. But of course, it can be if Putin wants, and we even do not understand why it is not logical a step. And the second fact is that you know, no one occasion can justify this attack in the eyes of Western partners. Will you recognize LDNR, or will not you? All Western world sees that Russia is fighting and supporting these groups in Donbass already, and the new attack also, it would not be justified, attack of one state through another. So maybe it is addressed to locals who were disappointed with the fact that Russia did not annex or law, and maybe uh, in this way, Kremlin tries to give uh, people a new turn of, of hopes, maybe this. Or uh, really, um, they make it in order to acknowledge Russian presence. So everybody knows, but uh, some starting point is need, uh, even for uh, Russians. Why uh, do our troops uh, appear there? So, in my opinion, it is like a play in words, rather, right? right um, like uh, points for media to uh, fool, uh, to fill a media with something. Right. It is also, you know, as you point out, uh, quite rightly, uh, of course, no, no, no action by Russia in terms of uh, recognizing the, these areas um, as independent countries would would justify any military action in the eyes of the West, certainly. So, you know, that that's not a realistic reason for them to do that. Um, and there's also... Yeah, Steve, the... and uh, sorry, I'd like to add that, in fact, um, Russian administration really made many steps uh, in order to make these territories uh, closer to them. For example, they uh, right. now discuss um, the option of giving Russian social payments. 
Uh, you know about pa passports, uh, many Russian passports yes. uh, from uh, 300 to 700,000 uh, people. And a Russian uh, program in schools, in fact, they become closer and closer. And uh, Ukrainian analysts often um, pay attention that uh, when these territories will uh, come back to Ukraine, it will be a great problem. Right. And that's presumably, I mean, I think most, you know, many analysts feel that that's... Uh, the way Russia would like to keep it. In, in other words, it would prefer not to actually recognize these territories as independent or bring them into Russia because it wants to have them as essentially a Trojan horse or a way to, to influence and affect Ukraine. So possibly this talk, this sort of renewed talk of recognition is just uh, the Kremlin and Putin giving themselves an option, uh, you know, uh, uh, an option in part in case the diplomacy does fail or, or they decide that it is, is failing or should fail. So I, I guess one, just a third uh, question for you, Tatiana, um, also kind of more geopolitical than, than on the ground, but um, is there any feeling uh, of any kind of new prospects for the, the Minsk to uh, agreement and the, the what are called the Normandy format talks. There's a meeting coming up next week that those those uh, comprise Ukraine, Russia, Germany, and France. Uh, Russia seems to be pushing on this issue again. In other words, um, saying that uh, we want um, the Minsk II agreement, which was designed to end the conflict in in the Donbass. Um, and, and uh, but but leaving leaving uh, the separatist house areas in Ukraine, um, and and that Russia is now pressing again more hard, more hard, or uh, more insistently for that to be implemented uh, in the way that it that Russia sees it. Um, are you seeing any kind of movement or feelings on on that on that score in the in the Donbas? Uh, really, this talks uh, continues, and uh, Russia has its own uh, tactic. Uh, the main point of this uh, tactic is uh, to um, make Ukraine to talk with uh, administrations, local administrations in Donbass, and Ukraine refuses from that. It is a stable situation for uh, seven years. Uh, I think rather not uh, attack of Russia depends on the state of peace negotiations, but this format, peace format, depends on uh, whether there will be an attack, because, uh, of course, new war will terminate all Minsk process. Um, it appeared uh, during the first uh, very active uh, wave of, of war, uh, during uh, the Baltseva operation, the big fighting uh, for the Baltseva city, and then, uh, thanks to Minsk agreements, uh, shelling was uh, stopped, in, in, mostly stopped. What does the Minsk process mean for both, si for both sides now? For Russia, it is a mechanism to control Ukrainian domestic policy because uh, they, they want to make uh, this uh, territory uh, both like part of Ukraine and like a place where Russian troops are and uh, to hold elections in this territory with uh, Russian troops. For Ukraine, it is a mechanism to stop fire and to exchange prisoners, but in fact, it uh, doesn't work and then do not lead to conflict resolution. Uh, of course, in some new formats are possible. Uh, it is 
hard to uh, tell what it could be. We'll see. But, um, of course, there is no connection with uh, how Minsk goes on uh, and, and the war. Of course, I think this uh, rhetoric of Russia will be the same, that Ukraine um, breaks these uh, peace agreements and please talk with LDNR groups. They, they will continue because it is a tactic and it, it should continue. Right. And I wonder whether you know, during or after the meeting next week, uh, whether Russia will, um, you know, use any kind of lack of progress as another point of pressure on Ukraine and the West, um, you know, to, to say, well, you're really not, you know, you're being recalcitrant. Um, so I think it's, it is another factor in, in what's going on. But as you say, or, you know, it's also separate from, uh, from, from what Russia uh, may or may not do. Um, thanks a lot, Tatiana. Um, I, I'd like to turn to Rostislav now um, to talk about um, more kind of Kiev-based uh, matters. Um, Rostislav, uh, what what's the mood you think there uh, in Kiev? Uh, in Kiev, given the differences, especially between the way the U.S. government and uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky's government are portraying the threat of a major Russian military offensive. I mean, um, the, you know, the, the United States has been, has been warning of this possibility, um, a lot of talk of imminent, possibly imminent, you know, for weeks. Um, and Zelensky's been, you know, seen as playing it down and, and has also been critical of, of the U.S. Uh, for its approach. So what's, in light of that, you know, what, what is the mood in Kiev as you see it? Generally speaking, between the line, we can read uh, statements of President Zelensky and his uh, close uh, um, circles uh, that, hello, we are kind of eight years already in war. Russia has invaded in 2014, mm -hmm. and it's not the first uh, military buildup near Ukrainian borders. Uh, we, ha we witnessed it last spring in 2021. But this time, actually, it's, it's different because uh, the previous invasion uh, in the Eastern Ukraine and annexation of Crimea and uh, later developments were done by Russia in a hybrid manner, in kind of hidden clandestine, latent manner. This time it's open, provocative, uh, kind of uh, the chances are 50-50. On mood generally of, of the population, there is no panic, no hysteria, I would say. Uh, but if uh, the Kremlin wanted to test uh, the readiness of Ukrainians to defend uh, their country, which actually is now 30, year, 30 years old already. Yeah. Um, uh, I think Ukrainians have passed this test. Uh, every, according to latest opinion polls, every third Ukrainian is ready to take arms if uh, Russia is to invade Ukraine. And about 50% are ready to join uh, territorial defense. In some uh, cities, especially towns uh, near eastern Ukraine, there are queues already. It's kind of the territorial defense, the list of territorial defense have been filled already, and there are queues of, of people to, to join in the future. Um, generally speaking, also, uh, 
there are differences, of course, as you still uh, have noticed between uh, what President Zelensky uh, says to Ukrainian uh, population uh, on, on, on TV and the U.S. administration, what, what does it says. Uh, the, the thing is that there are two different audiences. While President Biden, Biden is addressing kind of global uh, audience and, and particular sends messages to, to the Kremlin, to Russia, President Zelensky, I mean, the idea of Biden's message from White House, or the White House is kind of, you know, like we, we keeping an eye, we are keeping a hand on the pulse, don't invade Ukraine, we are checking, you know, we are watching. Uh, so it's, it's kind of uh, disciplined in, in a way, disciplined Russia. Uh, President Zelensky addresses local uh, audience, local Ukrainian populations, his uh, former and future possibly voters. Um, uh, uh, he's uh, concerned about impact of this escalation for Ukrainian economy, whether Ukrainian economy will grow kind of healthy 3.5 almost percent this year, uh, or, you know, people are worried about high utility bills, the government is worried about harsh winter and uh, lack of um, gas and coal in the storages. So, so, so to speak, and kind of there are domestic worries. But um, generally speaking, if uh, uh, this crisis and how President Zelensky behaves and manages it will uh, decide uh, his uh, will mark his first uh, presidential term. Uh, so far, it wasn't good because, uh, uh, according to again latest opinion polls, more than 50 percent, more than half of Ukrainians thinks uh, don't trust him as the commander in chief of Ukrainian armed forces. Uh, so they think that he doesn't manage uh, the situation very well as a commander in chief. Or uh, so it will. Uh, 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 how he manages this current uh, uh, standoff with Russia, the latest standoff, this very serious one, uh, will uh, determine his first presidential term and uh, whether he will uh, kind of uh, uh, rule till the uh, full the first presidential term and, and whether he will have chance for re-election in 2024. So there is, as you as you said, there is a domestic domestic uh, 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 emphasis here in the, in the whole story. I think that's a really great description of, you know, of your uh, mentioning the different audiences. I think that is an excellent explanation of what, you know, what seems to be going on uh, in terms of the dichotomy between the U.S., what the U.S. is publicly saying and, and, and Ukraine or, or Zelensky. Um, you know, I think that's extremely helpful for understanding. Um, uh, you mentioned your mention of the of the cues or lines you know, for, to join territorial defense forces and that sort of thing. You know, that kind of brings home the the idea that's kind of really underlying this whole thing with with, with Putin's pressure on Ukraine. Uh, this oh, well, in twenty twenty one with his articles about it, uh, and, and now this military buildup as well. Um, the idea that he may be trying, he's he and Russia and the Kremlin have you know have over the past decade and eight years, especially pushed Ukraine Ukrainians away. And now he may be trying to get them back by force. Um, so that's, you know, uh, it's kind of a uh, interesting way of thinking about it. Uh, you mentioned just uh, talk a little more maybe about the domestic um, effects of of the situation mm -hmm. with the tension over over Russia's military buildup and its demands, uh, the the no no joining NATO demand. 
Um, you mentioned it'll, it'll sort of make or break or the response uh, to Zelensky's actions will sort of make or break his first term and maybe determine whether he has a chance uh, or, or go a long way to determining whether he has a chance for a second term, uh, I think 2024. Um, so, but, and is it, is it now having, is there sort of, uh, is the situation and the, the buildup and the tension having a big effect um, on politics sort of in Ukraine at the moment? Is it right. adding to the political tensions a lot? Mm -hmm. So far, uh, you know, uh, 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 the Kremlin achieves the opposite of his initial intentions. Uh, on NATO, for instance, you know, like it was clear, a red line from Kremlin that Ukraine shouldn't join NATO, then Georgia was added, then the, uh, uh, any new countries uh, above uh, the current membership of 30 countries shouldn't be added, uh, no further expansion in the east uh, on nato uh, uh, just uh, two figures in 2013 before crimea uh, uh, was annexed uh, nato membership was supported by only 20% under yanukovych the presence of yanukovych by 20% of ukrainians now now it's 60% three times more if putin wanted to achieve uh, you know like uh, to discredit nato uh, to uh, put this kind of uh, cross uh, uh, draw this red line it achieved just the opposite uh, uh, zelensky also campaigned with no nato ticket he he didn't mention nato at all in his uh, 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 election campaign now he's uh, as one analyst uh, nicely joked that uh, we have uh, european euro atlantic integration on steroids almost every month he demands from the white house you know membership uh, for for ukrainian nato uh, he has high hopes for nato uh, uh, nato's Ma madrid summit in june next year uh, that ukraine should get membership action plan and should be invited he wants clear answers kind of you know the whole insecurity around ukraine the whole uh, the constant threats from russia made uh, uh, ukrainian president and uh, generally ukrainian population very very pro nato if Putin wanted to, uh, Kremlin wanted to divide the West, uh, the West is standing as, as uh, united as ever. Uh, if uh, he wanted to sc scare uh, Ukrainians, uh, it has also the opposite effect. Uh, we already discussed this before, but for instance, you know, like uh, armed forces are different from uh, they were uh, in 2014. Uh, yesterday, uh, Zelensky signed a decree increasing the uh, 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 number of Ukrainian armed forces by 1,000, 100,000 people. It's, it's significant increase. It's almost, uh, you know, like Ukraine armed forces will reach 3,500 now in, within three years. It's like one third of Russian armed forces. It's kind of good proportion because Russia is three times more in terms of population. Now Ukraine will have just three times less army. I mean, the proportions are there. Right. So uh, there will be the conscript, uh, uh, conscript will be dropped and will be fully professional army. The Ukrainian army also uh, got, I, I call them game changers, like Javelin American anti-tank missiles or Stinger uh, 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 anti-aircraft complexes or other high-tech uh, or NLO uh, uh, complexes from Britain. Uh, it's kind of game changers and it's quite different army. So uh, there are uh, quite, uh, I 
my uh, point is that uh, Kremlin intentions initially are once, and then uh, uh, they have opposite results at the end. So it's better not to to, to scare Ukrainians and 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 Ukraine because uh, the U Ukraine is different. Over the last seven years, after uh, eight years after uh, revolutionary dignity, there is a Ukrainian nation, the nation, political nation. Uh, it's united. It's it's it has a clear goals, and the main. Uh, 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 goal is to have independent free state part of European Western civilization. That's the main goal and it, it, very, it already had been achieved and it will be achieved even more in terms of EU, for instance, European integration in the future and NATO integration still. And that's, that's a great uh, kind of look at what's at stake here really um, uh, in what's going on now. Thanks Rastislav. Um, uh, I'd like to to turn to Irina Lagunina now um, uh, from the Russian service. Now, I, I'm going to go back to a question uh, that I asked Dr. Olicker. Uh, so far, Russia seems to be going ahead uh, with the diplomatic track uh, and even trying to trying to ensure that diplomacy continues, at least for now, even though the United States and NATO have rejected, essentially, its biggest demands. Um, uh, does it seem like this could go on for a long time, or is there still is there the possibility that it could end quite quickly? Well, Steve, you know the problem with uh, such a regime as uh, is in Kremlin right now is its unpredictability. Uh, because, and I do agree with uh, uh, statements of the foreign, uh, of the uh, international leaders, uh, including President uh, Biden, that uh, uh, everything depends on one person. And this person is Mr. Putin, and whatever he decides, that would be. Uh, on one hand, yes, if the negotiations continue, I think we will all benefit uh, from this in any case. Uh, and I do agree here with uh, Dr. Olikar because, uh, uh, you know, right now there is practically no international uh, agreement that would, uh, uh, you know, safeguard the uh, nuclear stability, the nuclear, uh, you know, uh, non-development uh, so it would be good for Europe, for European uh, security to uh, have such a prolonged uh, negotiations with uh, Russia. Uh, I would say that right now it doesn't seem like uh, Russia would, uh, uh, you know, go on for a long time uh, in, in the negotiations on the European security because uh, the uh, what, what we see from the leaked documents, from the uh, replies uh, of the West to uh, of the U.S. and NATO uh, to Russia, and on Russian ultimatum to the uh, West, uh, it's kind of the opposite uh, to uh, two opposite uh, uh, points of view, two opposite uh, stands. Uh, on one hand, Russia is right now demanding that. Uh, uh, NATO would give some guarantees uh, that uh, it would not put offensive weapons uh, at the area that was enlarged or included in NATO after 1997. Right. Uh, 
And uh, we saw today from the leaked documents that probably Russia would even want to uh, have an inspections of uh, NATO bases in Poland and uh, Czech Republic and Romania, uh, just to be sure that there are uh, no, for, for example, Tomahawk uh, missiles there. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the other hand, it's Russia itself that uh, broke those uh, uh, agreements of 1997. Uh, you know, those agreements, the uh, NATO-Russia founding act uh, also underlined the role of OSCE uh, uh, in collective security and the respect for Helsinki Act and uh, the stability of the uh, borders that none of the countries would use force uh, until uh, it is authorized by the Security Council, uh, the UN Security Council. So mm -hmm. Russia actually broke it. Uh, Russia uh, deployed... Uh, missiles in Kaliningrad area. Uh, so it looks like Russia uh, right now considers this negotiation as uh, the uh, way to get concessions from the West uh, without, uh, without actually offering anything in response uh, to uh, those, uh, you know, legitimate uh, concerns that the West right now has. Uh, so that's on one hand. On the other hand, uh, what we see at the border right now uh, makes the situation uh, really eminent because uh, uh, I, I think it was today that Pentagon uh, spokesperson said that uh, uh, what Russia has right now amassed uh, around the borders with uh, Ukraine is enough. Uh, foreign uh, quick invasion uh, into Ukrainian territory, and Russia continues uh, to do it uh, and continues to build up forces. So uh, it's difficult. It's really difficult to say uh, that uh, you know whether it could end in one uh, second when Mr. Putin decides so or not. Yeah, I mean that's the sort of uh, you know as you say that the, no, nobody seems to be saying that the the escalation in terms the escalation the uh deployments and the, the military buildup by russia is is flagging at all so it's still going on um even as the diplomacy continues i guess one thing to one way to try to gauge what russia's plans are um which obviously is difficult to do is is to look at the media and you know sometimes they're they're obviously ahead or trying to guess what the kremlin wants but um are the state-controlled or state-loyal media outlets in Russia kind of preparing Russians, uh, their audiences, for a new military offensive targeting Ukraine? Uh, and and what do people think about it uh, in Russia, including in the context of the economic troubles and, and COVID, which obviously is sweeping many countries in a, in a new way, but but uh, and cases in Russia have, have really skyrocketed. Okay, uh, answering your first question, Steve, uh, what does the Russian media do and how it portrays uh, the e e Ukrainian affairs right now? Uh, if you look at Russian television, you would think that the war is already there uh, because ev practically every day uh, there, there are reports on Russian television that uh, uh, Ukrainian troops made another provocation in the uh, Donbass area, uh, that uh, they're conducting undermining activities uh, uh, along the line. 
separation line there. Uh, it's 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 uh, the NATO is deploying more and more uh, arms in Ukraine, and uh, those arms are portrayed as offensive, of course. So uh, all this. Uh, it's just uh, uh, if you look at it, you you will see an absolute war hysteria on the screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, this actually aggravated recently because, uh, frankly, starting from early 2014, the Russian television made everything possible to uh, dehumanize Ukrainians. They were. Uh, you know, the, the, they were not even called Ukrainians. The Russian uh, hosts uh, invented a collection of words uh, to call Ukrainians anyway, except for, you know, Ukrainians and nationals and humans, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so this, but this now is a, is a little bit worse than, than it was. And when this started on Russian television, it was already uh, in 2014 it was already obvious that russia was gonna is planning to do something uh because that was the psychological preparation for the annexation of crimea and uh, for the conflict in donbass so yes the television is uh, preparing right now for the war uh regarding the second part of your question uh, uh what do people think uh, uh, especially in the context of economic troubles and covid well first of all uh, russians are in denial of covid like 50 percent population or more uh, that do not even think and do not talk about covid and do not write uh, do not read anything about it that we know from our own statistics of the website uh, but we it's interesting because we uh, conducted several vox pops uh, in Moscow and, uh, for example, in Kaliningrad uh, recently and asked people those uh, questions. What do they think? Uh, what will be the consequences of the uh, uh, the consequences of the conflict for them? Uh, whether Russia will be able to reach an agreement with NATO and the West? Uh, and what we uh, found out, uh, to frankly, to my surprise, was that... Uh, uh, Nobody believes that none of the people that talked to us uh, believed that uh, the conflict is possible, uh, that the conflict is imminent, that uh, Putin will start the new war. Uh, it's not that people are saying, no, I just I'm against this war. I, uh, you know, I absolutely oppose it. Uh, uh, no, but they just don't believe that this this is possible. And in Kaliningrad, uh, which is um, probably doesn't reflect the uh, mood of the whole Russia because it's a little bit kind of westernized exclave of the Russian mm-hmm. Federation. Uh, but in Kaliningrad, people were saying that, you know, what kind of war? Those people, they are our brothers. Uh, you know, the war is impossible. This is just crazy. Uh so that was very interesting. But yes, people are very much concerned that if there is a conflict and if there are economic sanctions as bad as the West uh, is now saying they would be in, in case of the conflict, then that will really hit them hard because uh, the, situ- the economic situation in Russia is not that pretty at all right now. 
Okay, that's, and that may be a factor, and to what degree uh, what the people think and feel is a factor in, in what uh, the Kremlin will do uh, is is a bit unclear. Um, I guess a bit of an anti-comics, but just would ask a question similar to one of Tatiana, but about the possibility of recognition by Russia of the uh, areas held by Russia-backed forces in the Donbass. Um, could it even, does that seem likely now or is it just talk? I mean, it strikes me and I think some other analysts or analysts have said uh, it's, it could be kind of an option, almost a consolation prize from Putin to, to himself uh, if, uh, you know, if, if he doesn't get what he, what he seems to want uh, in a broader way from, from NATO and, and the West. That, mm-hmm. might be, that might be the case, absolutely. I do agree. and uh, uh, But I also agree with uh, what uh, Tatiana said, uh, that, uh, you know, it for, for Kremlin, it would be better to keep this territory as it is right now, as a source of instability uh, for Ukraine, as uh, the area that does not uh, let Ukraine to... Uh, develop normally uh, to become a prosperous country uh, because it adds a lot, uh, plus to the corruption that is both in Ukraine and in Russia, it adds instability and it uh, drags resources from Ukrainian economy. But uh, what is obvious right now is that, uh, uh, you know, uh, Russia started to understand uh, its failure in economic, uh, not maybe development of Donbass area, but uh, uh, its failure to economically sustain this uh, region. That's why there are, there is more and more money uh, that Kremlin is pouring into this territory. It's not only uh, right now the uh, accessibility to the uh, social s- system uh, of Russia, which is called Gosuslugi, uh, the, 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 this process has started. Uh, the, the Putin set a goal in December to uh, to uh, cover this area with Russian pensions, for example. Uh, and uh, that, of course, completely contradicts the efforts uh, of uh, uh, both international community, Minsk group, and uh, uh, Ukraine uh, to ensure, uh, you know, humanitarian aspect of relationship with uh, with Donbas uh, area, uh, with so-called LNR and DNR. Uh, so, uh, I, it's difficult to say whether Putin would want to grab this territory and, uh, you know, annex it or conquer it. Uh, as uh, it did with Crimea. Uh, but uh, uh, the fact is that Russian presence there is enlarging. Uh, they are now trying to buy the uh, kind of uh, uh, the support of uh, local people. Uh, and but what, what I want to stress, and also Tatiana mentioned it, uh, right now there are 720,000 people in the uh, Donbass area who got Russian passports. Uh, Russia is giving out those passports as part of uh, so-called humanitarian 
uh, deal because uh, those people cannot travel, they cannot, uh, uh, you know, cannot uh, go to the West. Uh, there are a lot of humanitarian aspects of this side, but so Russia claimed that it's uh, like humanitarian aid uh, to, to this population. Uh, there are eight uh, stations in uh, Donbass area where uh, Ukrainians in Donbass can get Russian passports. Uh, and still, it's only 720,000 out of 3.7 million uh, population of this area. So uh, that's not a big support for, for, for being a part of Russia. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, thanks a lot. I mean, those are, those are great insights as well. Um, uh, and, and thanks uh, to all our speakers. I'd, I'd like to, you know, we don't want to go on much. Uh, we don't have too much more time. Uh, we're coming up on an hour, but I'd like to take, to take some questions. So I believe the way it's done is um, listeners would need to uh, request to ask uh to request to speak um, and then be given uh, be given the mic uh, to speak. So um, please go ahead and, and do that if uh, if anyone has any questions. And I apologize in advance if we if we can't answer all of them. Uh, Shane Duffy, you're approved to speak. Uh, hi, did you hear that, Shane Duffy? Um, do you have is your mic on? Can you speak and ask a question? Uh, no, no. Uh, sorry, I, I, I guess that's not working out. Any other requests to uh, to ask any questions of uh, any of the any of the speakers? Okay. Uh, if not, we will wrap it up. Um, wanted to apologize again for yesterday's uh, inability to uh, to conduct this Twitter space and uh, thank everyone. Who, uh, who participated, uh, all the listeners and, and the speakers. Um, uh, I think some, some, great, uh, some great insights and I'm glad we were able to do this. Uh, so um, hope to see you back again uh, another time. And thanks very much. Uh, we'll, we'll sign off now. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. -bye. Thank you. Bye. Goodbye.